How's it going, man? How you doing? Ah, uh, got uh, Ward already met her, but there we got a Pyrenees. Nice. Yeah. So we're trying to figure out like what the fuck her deal is. She was a rescue. Oh, look at that face. I know she's a polar bear. I hope it's not hot down there. Jeez, look at all that fur. Dude, she gets overheated, but they were like, just throw like an ice pack on her. So now our freezer is full of ice packs and she just lays like (laughs) with a bunch of ice packs on her. It's kind of endearing. But yeah, we're trying to figure out like she's not aggressive, but she does woof at people for no reason, which is kind of scary because she's over 100 pounds. Yeah. Oh, she's been woofing at people? Yeah, she's been woofing at people. Hmm. she'll like she'll like rush them you know how like a black bear does like they're just like what's up bro (laughs) (laughs) just punking people out yeah she'll just fucking punk them and then back off and then be super cool but like yeah it's a little little scary oh man that sucks it was hilarious when she was growling at monty and hucky that shit was so funny oh they backed off real quick Like, Except for Monty, if there was food around, he was just whatever. Growl at me, I don't care. There's food around. Yeah. <laughs> are they streaming movie night? They are. Yeah, I was about to say. Uh, Mail said. Uh, Mail said they were going to take over movie night for me tonight. Looks like she's streaming. Uh, Bo Burnham. Oh yeah, I think it was Bo Burnham's what? Yeah, I want to stream uh, No Country for Old Men next week. That would be a solid choice. I fucking love that movie, dude. <laughs> Anton Chigurh is just. Like, you're not supposed to like him. Or maybe you are supposed to like him. I'm not sure. Like, he's such a badass character. Or honestly, anything with Leslie Nielsen, just since we were talking about that today. Did that come up somewhere else? Because somebody mentioned it in the movie episode. I'm like, where's all this, like, naked gun shit coming from? Like, I don't know, but I'm about it. <laughs> I haven't watched that shit in, like, 20 years. Yeah, the Discord was, yeah. like, fucking nuts today. Yeah, so. I've only seen naked gun once a long time ago. Yeah, no, also just to, to pique their interest too, like if Cosper mentions a certain episode topic that they want to do, you know, like Jordan Peterson or something like that. Oh, they did mention Joe Rogan. I forgot about that one. Oh, yeah. I mean, I- any of those commentators, like I would love to hear Cosper's take on that kind of like right wing pipeline pseudo intellectual bullshit from any of the mouthpieces. Yeah, but those two I hate in particular. So we could set something up with that. Yeah, Joe Rogan would be a good one. I know I could go off for a while on Joe Rogan. Because I actually like his podcast, but I just think that he unintentionally or intentionally, I don't really know, platforms so many alt-right ideas and talking points. And that entire fan base is all these people who are like, like if you ask a Joe Rogan fan any of their opinions on like a particular topic or event or anything, they would give you the conservative, like right-wing viewpoint on it. But if you ask them what their politics are, I'm sure a lot of them would say they're lean right. But I think most would say, oh, I'm just I'm a centrist. I'm nonpartisan. I'm like independent. You know what I mean? Like they are the definition of the ideological person who doesn't realize that they are steeped in ideology, you know? Yeah. Or they think they're a libertarian. Yeah. I fucking hate when people are like, oh, I'm a centrist. And then when you fucking push when it comes to different issues and policies, all right wing talking points, all right wing policies every fucking time. It's just, oh, you're conservative, but you didn't want to come off as one. You didn't want to laugh. You don't like the label conservative, you fuck. It's almost like horseshoe theory isn't real. Right? I like fishhook. That sounds good. And the guillotine one, too. That one's cool. Go lie down. Go do something.
keeping my dogs out of my new office has been a fucking challenge. <laughs> <laughs> like, just waiting for me to open the door. Bro, why aren't we hanging out, bro? Because your hair gets everywhere and you get right in my face while I'm recording podcasts. That's why she's down here. She doesn't even like stairs, but like I was down here and she's just like, all right, well, I guess I'm coming downstairs. Like, bitch, I put on Gravity Falls for you. <laughs> like, no, and we're just like, looking around my office. Look at that fluffy butt. What's, uh, what's Gravity Falls? It's like a cartoon. I think it was on Cartoon Network for a couple oh. of years. Yeah, I put on cartoons for the <laughs> Some dog. kids are like dogs. <laughs> oh, yeah, you can treat them both the same for most of the time. Accurate. A lot of them are interchangeable. Like, you don't want to shake them, don't feed them chocolate, shit like that. Let's see, now she's going to go tear up my rug back there. Go on, do it. Of course. I know you're going to do it. It's fine. <laughs> All right, you guys ready? All right, let's do this shit. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Turn Leftist Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him. And tonight I'm here with Ward and Jaron, also he, him. And tonight we're going to wrap up our series on Cuba. Uh, So we had intended just to do like one episode on Cuba, but we just got so sidetracked talking about Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. Um, But so hopefully this will be our wrap up. And uh, as I mentioned in the last episode, some of the things I wanted to address to wrap up our series on Cuba and the revolution were Fidel Castro and his views on LGBTQ people, um, more about the revolution itself and the Cuban Missile Crisis, and lastly, the political and economic situation in Cuba since the revolution. And uh, I guess just to start off, since I have a lot of notes here, let's just get right into it. Let's just get it out of the way and address Fidel and LGBTQ rights. So to briefly sum it up, I can say right off the bat that it was not a good situation. There's a lot more evidence uh, for Fidel being homophobic than there was for Shea. Obviously, we discussed misrepresentations or flat-out lies about Guevara and his feelings toward gay people. But in the case of Fidel, I'm I'm not even going to make any excuses for his views. They were bad, like at least at the time, like after the revolution and for decades after that. From what I can tell, he absolutely did hold some very reactionary views that, again, were sadly very common for the time period. But let me reiterate that that is not meant to excuse it. And I don't think I need to expound on this at length since all this stuff... It's incredibly easy to find in any media outlet here in the capitalist West. Um, But I will say, like, for instance, here's an excerpt from a a 2010 BBC article. Fidel Castro has said that he is ultimately responsible for the persecution suffered by homosexuals in Cuba after the revolution of 1959. The former president told the Mexican newspaper La Jornada that there were moments of great injustice against the gay community. If someone is responsible, he said, it's me. In the 1960s and 70s, many homosexuals in Cuba were fired, imprisoned, or sent to re-education camps. Mr. Castro said homosexuals had traditionally been discriminated in Cuba, just as black people and women. But, nevertheless, he admits he didn't pay enough attention to what was going on against the gay community. Quote, At the time, we were being sabotaged systematically. There were armed attacks against us. We had too many problems, said the 84-year-old communist leader. Quote, Keeping one step ahead of the CIA which was paying so many traitors, was not easy. 
Um, and now, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you might think that we would accept this as an excuse, since we very often talk about the sabotage of social estates by the CIA. But if I can presume to speak for all the hosts, I would say that our position, uh, as far as the podcast, is that this is really not a good excuse. Like, you can't really blame the CIA uh, interfering in your country for persecuting gay people. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So the only positive that I can really comment on is that Fidel later in his life not only changed his views and became more tolerant, he both took full responsibility for his errors, as previously discussed, and also as mentioned in that article I just read, but also that Castro actively took steps to make real material changes for the better with respect to LGBT rights in Cuba. Um, So this is again from the BBC in 2008. Uh, Cuba has authorized sexual reassignment surgery and will offer them free to qualifying citizens, officials say. The move is the latest in a series of policy changes implemented by President Raul Castro since he succeeded his elder brother Fidel in February. Raul Castro's daughter Mariela has also pushed for the state to recognize same-sex unions and inheritance rights. If adopted, the reforms would give Cuba the most liberal gay rights in Latin America. Also, just regarding Cuba and gay rights, in Cuba, men who engage in sex with another man are not barred from donating blood. On the other hand, here in the United States, gay men cannot have sex for a year if they want to donate blood. You can just look that up on redcrossblood.org. It's just their policy for donating blood. So, I mean, that's really all I put in the notes about gay rights in Cuba. Like I said, we're not going to make a whole lot of excuses for... So what you got, Jaren? Uh, it's just kind of tailing on that, too. Is like, as far as Cuba's concerned, like most of my critiques geared towards like existing communist states, like... Honestly, they are kind of carrying the torch for me personally, because like even in places like the DPRK, same thing. You can't donate blood. You you can't adopt kids if you're a, a same sex couple. Um, it's pretty squirrely in China with that, too. So like Cuba has made a lot of progressive strides in that fashion. And, you know, same thing you said, I'm not going to sit here and defend Castro on his record with the LGBTQ plus community. But, you know, if we look at the time period when he was really dead set in that thinking in the United States, we were still using, <laughs> we were putting gay people in asylums and electrocuting them thinking that that would quote unquote cure them. And we still haven't banned, you know, what are yeah. re-education camps here for gay kids. You can legally send your kid to a camp with incredibly high suicide rates, by the way, to quote unquote re-educate them and make them mm-hmm. straight. So like, you know, whenever I hear that from, people who want to give Castro or Cuba shit or whatever. It's like, well, dude, you need to extend that further and look at home. Um, because a lot of the things that you you're condemning him for still exist right now in our country. And by all means, don't excuse him. But like, if you really have a problem with it and not just a problem with communism, then you may want to expand your thinking a little bit. Exactly. Like that's not even to do the what about thing. Like, just like we said, on the last episode when we talked about Shea and his views, it's not even like bringing up the U.S. or any other Western country and the very reactionary views that are still held here. It's not even to do the whataboutism or just to deflect. It's just to show that, I mean, our position obviously is that it's going to be because of Marxism or communism or leftism in general that they were able to change their views so rapidly compared to other Western capitalist countries, but, and, you know, make material improvements. But that is the point. Like if we actually do care about marginalized people, if we care about LGBT rights, we should want people who hold reactionary views to change those views and adapt. Like, it's one thing to circle jerk and meme about putting people up against the wall if they're homophobes, but like, ideally, you should want people to learn and improve and become better people. And that's what we're seeing in the case of Cuba, Fidel personally, like, 
they changed. They they got better. They improved. And it became more progressive. So that's really all I can say about it. It's just that that's what we want to happen, and that seems to be what has happened in Cuba, and at a better rate than what has happened here in the U.S. So yeah, I'd also add that comparing two things in depth is hardly a whataboutism. Yeah, and like I said the the other time, um, since most of the criticism of Cuba comes from the U.S., it is kind of relevant. You know. Okay, so moving on. Now I wanted to get into a little more about the Cuban Revolution itself, because I think in the first episode we kind of blew through a lot of that very quickly, because we just had a lot to cover, and we talked mostly about Fidel in that episode. But uh, so here I wanted to talk about the attack on the Moncada barracks. Um, so this didn't involve Che Guevara at the time. He wasn't involved in the Cuban Revolution yet. This is from CubaHistory.org. On July 26, 1953, at 6 a.m., Fidel Castro and his brother Raul led a group of approximately 120 rebels with an additional 40 intending to take the barracks at Bayamo in an attack on the second largest military garrison in Cuba, headquarters of the 400, others say about 1,000, uh, 400 strong Antonio Maceo Regiment under the command of President Fulgencio Batista. The group formed a 16 automobile caravan in order to give the appearance of being a delegation headed by a high-ranking officer sent from Western Cuba. Their plan was that a first group of 20 men led by Abel Santa Maria would take the civilian hospital at the rear of the barracks. A second group of five men, led by Lester Rodriguez, would take the Audiencia building, and a third group of 90 men, led by Castro, would take the barracks, including the radio transmitter within it. The attack began poorly. The caravan of automobiles became separated by the time it arrived at the barracks, and the car carrying the guerrillas' heavy weapons got lost. Furthermore, many of the rebels who would have taken part in the attack were left behind for a lack of weapons. The rebels also lost their possibility of surprise when Castro lost control of his car, crashed, and someone from the rebels opened fire to cover him. In Castro's autobiography, he claims that he drove his car into a group of soldiers at the gate who had realized an attack was in progress. The men in the cars behind him jumped out of their cars, believing they were inside the barracks, and the alarm was sounded before the barracks had been infiltrated. According to Castro, this was the fatal mistake in their operation. The net result of these events was the rebels being outnumbered more than 10 to 1. 15 soldiers and 3 policemen were killed, and 23 soldiers and 5 policemen wounded during the attack. 9 rebels were killed in combat and 11 wounded, 4 of them by friendly fire. Castro recollects that 5 were killed in the fighting and 56 were murdered later by the Batista regime. 18 rebels captured in the civil, in the civil hospital were immediately executed in the Moncada small arms target range within 2 hours after the attack. Their corpses were strewn throughout the garrison to simulate death in combat. 34 fleeing rebels captured during the next three days were murdered after admitting their participation. The stories of the tortures committed to the rebels, eye gouging, castration, and dismemberment, does not hold up to the impartial testimony of funeral director Manuel Bartolome, who retrieved the rebel cadavers and is not substantiated by forensic photographs, death certificates, court tes testimony, or news media coverage of the subsequent trial. A handful of rebels, including Fidel Castro, escaped into the nearby countryside, but were apprehended shortly thereafter. The only part about that that seems a little odd to me was where they say the stories of the tortures committed to the rebels was not substantiated by, like, the photographs or the news media. It's like, considering what we have talked about before in the other episodes about Cuba and talking about the Batista regime and how brutal they were to all the rebels and anybody who dared to stand up against the regime, it doesn't seem out of character that they would have tortured these people. So I'm not really sure how much I believe that they didn't torture these rebels that attacked the barracks, but... We can assume, for the sake of argument, that that's the case, that they didn't, but it doesn't make the, the regime overall seem any more, what do you call it, benevolent? No, not at all. I mean, so let me make sure I have my timeline straight here, because um, 
I'm not totally sure that I do. So I know that uh, Cuba during the Spanish-American War ended up being ceded more or less into, into the United States' hands, like in the early 20th century. And then the United States... That was something, something we didn't mention in the first episode. Oh, sorry, Jan. Oh, well, okay. So, but I guess here, here's the timeline as per my understanding relating to the Batistas is the Spanish-American War happened and then the Platt Amendment happened, which was basically the U.S. saying to the provisional Cuban government, we're not going to leave unless you agree to these terms, all of which were vague and all of which were basically like, we get to fuck you however we want in whatever position we want whenever. But Batista, I think, overthrew that provisional government once the United States was out of Cuba. And that's where the military dictatorship came from, is like leaning into the right wing of mm -hmm. like whatever uh, parties existed at the time. At least that's my understanding of it. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know a whole lot about the Batista regime, except for what we covered and what I discussed in the previous episodes. But what I did not mention that I you know, found out researching for tonight's episode was that um, the Batista regi regime was backed by the U.S. up to a certain point. It wasn't okay. until he became so incredibly unpopular and so incredibly brutal to its citizens that the U.S. decided, look, we can't be associated with you. And that's actually when things really started to go bad for Batista and Castro was able to actually have a successful revolution. And the other thing I would mention is that, yeah, you're right. Um, Batista did take power in a military coup. Um, it was something like an election happened and it was very much kind of like the Trump thing. Like he lost the election. It was very obvious that he lost the election, but he's just like, no, I'm going to be in power anyway. And just because he had the military behind him, it worked. So that's pretty bad. If the U S is like, dude, you're really messed up. We can't even hang out with you anymore. <laughs> very much so. Dude. Yeah. I was like, that definitely wouldn't happen today. They're over there like kicking it with Pinochet and shit. And like, <laughs> it's like, nah, you're too, you've gone too far. That was the line. I mean, and they had just cooed Guatemala. Like this was like right around the same time because that was when, like we discussed in the, in the last episode that, uh, yeah, no, you're right. It's, it's 1954 because yeah, Che Guevara was like yeah. traveling around all of Latin America and writing his motorcycle diaries. And that's what radicalized him was seeing Guatemala. So. We coo whoever we want, bro. <laughs> um, let's talk about the expedition of the Granma. This was the yacht that the Cuban rebels boarded to get from Mexico, where they had been hiding out after the failed attack on the Moncada barracks. And they took this yacht to get back to Cuba to actually start the revolution um, in earnest. So in November 1956, 82 Cuban rebels piled onto the small yacht Granma and, sail, and set sail to set off the revolution. The yacht, designed for only 12 passengers and supposedly with a maximum capacity of 25, also had to carry fuel for a week, as well as food and weapons for the soldiers. Um, just a side note, I referenced this last week because in one of the quotes from Shea, this is where an interviewer had asked him, like, what do you think about what radicalized you and why you wanted to join the revolution? And Shea said, you know, you have to be a little crazy to even want to have a revolution. He's like, if you look back on the events of the revolution itself, like this expedition of Grand Mal, the attack on the Moncada barracks, like when they were defending their encampments in the Sierra Maestra, it was such a long shot that you would have never thought that any of these things would have worked, let alone all of them in succession, leading to a successful revolution. So anyway, continuing. So I said it also had to carry fuel for a week as well as food and weapons for the soldiers, despite having only a, a nominal capacity of 12 people. So they had all these people in there and all the food and rations as well. Miraculously, the Grand Mom made it to Cuba on December 2nd, and the rebels, including Fidel and Raul Castro, um, Che Guevara, and Camilo Sinfuegos. 
So the background of the uh, of this expedition. After the failed Moncada attack, Castro was sent to jail. The attackers were released in 1955 by dictator Fulgencio Batista, however, who was bowing to international pressure to release the political prisoners. Castro and many of the others went to Mexico to plan the next step of the revolution. There, Castro found many Cuban exiles who wanted to see the end of the Batista regime. They began to organize the 26th of July movement, named after the date of the Moncada assault. In Mexico, the rebels collected arms and received training. Fidel and Raul Castro also met two men who would play key roles in the revolution, Argentine physician Ernesto Che Guevara and Cuban exile Camilo Sinfuegos. The Mexican government, suspicious of the activities of the movement, detained some of them for a while, but eventually, eventually left them alone. The group had some money, provided by former Cuban President Carlos Prio. When the group was ready, they contacted their comrades back in Cuba and told them to cause distractions on November 30th, the day they would arrive. And now getting to the actual expedition, or I guess talking about the ship. Castro still had the problem of how to get the men to Cuba. At first, he tried to purchase a used military transport, but was unable to locate one. Desperate, he purchased the yacht Grandma for $18,000 of Prio's money through a Mexican agent. The Grandma, supposedly named after the grandmother of its first owner, an American, was run down. It's two diesel engines in need of repair. The 43-foot yacht could only fit about 20 people comfortably. At the end of November... Castro heard rumors that the Mexican police were planning to arrest the Cubans and possibly turn them over to Batista. Even though repairs to the Grandma were not completed, he knew they had to go. On the night of November 25th, the boat was loaded down with food, weapons, and fuel, and 82 Cuban rebels came on board. Another 50 or so remained behind, as there was no room for them. The boat departed silently, so as not to alert Mexican authorities. Once it was in international waters, the men on board began loudly singing the Cuban national anthem. The 1,200-mile sea voyage was utterly miserable. Food had to be rationed, and there was no room for anyone to rest. The engines were in poor repair and required constant attention. As the Grandma passed Yucatan, it began taking on water, and the men had to bail until the bilge pumps were repaired. For a while, it looked as if the boat would surely sink. Seas were rough, and many of the men were seasick. Guvada, a doctor, could tend to the men, but he had no, sea he had no seasickness remedies. One man fell overboard at night, and they spent an hour searching for him before he was rescued. This used up fuel they could not spare. Castro had estimated the trip would take five days, and communicated to his people in Cuba that they would arrive on November 30th. The grandma was slowed by engine trouble and excess weight, however, and didn't arrive until December 2nd. The rebels in Cuba did their part, attacking government and military installations on the 30th, but Castro and the others did not arrive. They reached Cuba on December 2nd, but it was during broad daylight, and the Cuban Air Force was flying patrols looking for them. They also missed their intended landing spot by about 15 miles. So just like everything that could possibly go wrong has gone wrong with this entire trip to begin with. That's absolutely insane. Yeah. And I mean, it, it speaks to like, I don't know if you uh, saw that ridiculous thing from Biden earlier this year where he was saying like, oh, your, your AR-15 can't beat an F-15 fighter jet or something like that. <laughs> um, and it's just like, yeah. <laughs> can't do it. <laughs> You know, it's like <laughs> Which you is, would never think that any revolution in history would have worked. You wouldn't think the Bolsheviks could overthrow the crown either. That nobody like I didn't know yeah. any of that. That's insane. My favorite part about that whole thing with Biden was that like then all the Republicans were like, oh, Biden says he's going to nuke his own citizens. Like, did he did he really say that? Or did he say that you would have to have nukes to take on the United States because it's a nuclear power? Like they try so hard to be snowflakes and be offended at every little thing. Um, so going on, all 82 rebels reached Cuba, and Castro decided to head for the mountains of the Sierra Maestra, where he could regroup and contact sympathizers in Havana and elsewhere. 
In the afternoon of December 5th, they were located by a large army patrol and attacked by surprise. The rebels were immediately scattered, and over the next few days, most of them were killed or captured. Less than 20 made it to the Sierra Maestro with Castro. The handful of rebels who survived the Grand Mal trip and ensuing massacre became Castro's inner circle, men he could trust, and he built his movement around them. By the end of 1958, Castro was ready to make his move. The despised Batista was driven out, and the revolutionaries marched into Havana in triumph. The Grand Mal itself was retired with honor. After the triumph of the revolution, it was brought to Havana Harbor. Later, it was preserved and put on display. Today, the Grand Ma is a sacred symbol of the revolution. The province where it landed was divided, creating the new Grand Ma province. The official newspaper of the Cuban Communist Party is called Grand Ma. The spot where it landed was made into the landing of the Grand Ma National Park, and it has been named a UNESCO World Heritage Site, although more for marine life than historical value. Every year, Cuban schoolchildren board a replica of the Grand Ma and retrace its voyage from the coast of Mexico to Cuba. This is adorable. That is pretty amazing. The fact that enough people made it on that trip to even embark on the island is mind-boggling. Yeah, and then not only that, they, um, I assume they probably recruited some more people from the island once they got there, like people who were sympathetic to the revolution, but this is uh, getting into Early. where they put up that defense I was talking about at the Sierra Maestra. In the first episode we did on Fidel, um, I quoted him when he said that it was like ping-pong where the Batista's forces were attacking them and they were in the mountains and they would basically just go from spot to spot attacking Batista's troops wherever they at least expected it. And obviously it worked. So let's see. This is a different article, but it's going to cover some of the same territory. The Grand Ma landed in Cuba on December 2nd, 1956, crashing in a mangrove swamp at the Playa Las Coloradas, close to the Los Cayuelos. Batista's forces had been expecting them, and within several hours of their arrival, they were bombarded from a naval vessel. Fleeing inland, they headed for the Sierra Maestra in Oriente, a large forested mountain range from where they could lead a guerrilla war against Batista. At daybreak on December 5th, they were unexpectedly attacked by a detachment of Batista's Royal Guard. In the confusion, the rebels scattered into different groups, which continued making their journey to the Sierra Maestra independently. With only two comrades, Castro made it to the mountains, along the way meeting up with others who had survived the attack. Ultimately, it was discovered that 80, of the 82 rebels who had arrived on the Grand Mall, only 19 had made it to the Sierra Maestra, the rest being killed or captured by Batista's forces. Setting up an encampment in the thick jungle of the Sierra Maestra, the survivors, who included Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, Raul Castro, and Camilo Sinfuegos, began launching attacks on small army posts in the region in order to steal weaponry. In January 1957, they attacked the outpost near the beach at La Plata, defeating the soldiers stationed there. Being a doctor, Guevara treated the soldiers for any injuries, but the revolutionaries executed the local mayoral land company overseer, Chicho Osorio, who was despised by the local peasants and who had, the, who had boasted of killing one of the um, 26th of July movement rebels several weeks previously. The execution of Osorio aided the rebels in gaining the trust of the local people, who typically hated the mayorals as enforcers of the much-despised wealthy landowners. Nonetheless, the locals were initially unenthusiastic in their support for the guerrillas, viewing them with suspicion as outsiders. As trust grew between the two communities, some locals joined the rebels, although the majority of new recruits came from urban areas, traveling to the Sierra Maestra in order to aid the revolutionary effort. With rising levels of support, an increasing number of volunteers joining the rebel army, which now numbered over 200, in July 1957, Castro eventually divided his men into three columns, keeping charge of one and giving control of the others to his brother and Che Guevara. The 26th of July movement members, operating in urban areas, continued agitating against the government, sending supplies to the Sierra Maestro rebels, and on February 16, 1957, 
Castro met with other leading members of the group to discuss tactics. It was here that he met Celia Sanchez, who would become a close friend. And here's a quote from uh, Fidel regarding his iconic beard in 2009. He says, quote, The story of our beards is very simple. It arose out of the difficult conditions we were living and fighting under as guerrillas. We didn't have any razor blades. Everybody just let their beards and hair grow, and that turned into kind of a badge of identity. For the campesinos and everybody else, for the press, for the reporters, we were los barbudos, the bearded ones. It had its positive side. Yeah. That's pretty good, right? That's pretty sick, yeah. Um, it had its positive side. In order for a spy to infiltrate us, he had to start preparing months ahead of time. He'd have to have had six months of growth of beard, you see. Later, with the triumph of the revolution, we kept our beards to preserve the symbolism. Which is just hilarious. Like, imagine if you're trying to infiltrate these guys, you got to like, oh, I'll see you guys in six months. Otherwise, you're going to spot me immediately. It's kind of genius. Like, I mean, honestly, yeah. Also, the bearded ones sounds like some J.R.R. Tolkien-like shit. It just sounds cool. <laughs> it actually does, yeah. Um, the Cuban Revolution was not contained to the 26th of July movement. And across Cuba, militant groups were beginning to rise up against Batista. Most notably, Echevarria and his group had been carrying out bombings and acts of sabotage, leading the police to respond with mass arrests, the torture of suspects, and extrajudicial killings. In March 1957, Echevarria's group launched an attack on the presidential palace with Batista himself narrowly surviving. The rebels were eventually defeated, and Echevarria was shot dead by police in the street as he attempted to issue a radio broadcast. His death would prove beneficial for Castro, removing a charismatic rival to his leadership of the anti-Batista movement. Although already a Marxist-Leninist, Castro kept his beliefs a secret for many of the, from many of the 26th of July members. Something in contrast to uh, Guevara and Raul, whose beliefs were well known. In this way, he hoped to gain a wider support base amongst those of other political persuasions, and in 1957, he met with leading members of the Partido Ortodoxo. Castro and the Ortodoxo leaders, Raul Chibas and Felipe Pazos, drafted and signed a document called the Sierra Maestra Manifesto in which they laid out their plans for a post-Bartista Cuba. Rejecting the idea that Cuba should be run by a provisional military junta following Batista's demise, it demanded that a provisional civilian government be set up that was, quote, supported by all, and which would implement agrarian reform, industrialization, and a campaign to wipe out illiteracy before introducing truly fair, democratic, impartial elections. Batista's government censored the Cuban media, and so Castro felt it would be beneficial to reach out and contact foreign media sources in order to spread his message. Pretty clever, actually. Totally. A U.S. journalist from the New York Times named Herbert Matthews came to interview Castro, attracting international interest to the rebels' cause and turning him into a celebrity. The New York Times front-page story presented Castro as a romantic and appealing revolutionary and exaggerated the number of troops and resources that he had at his command, with Matthews declaring that, Quote, Batista cannot possibly hope to suppress the Castro revolt. Soon, other reporters followed in Matthew's footsteps by traveling to the Sierra Maestra to interview Castro, sent by such news agencies as CBS, while a reporter from Paris stayed with the rebels for around four months, documenting their daily routine. The number of attacks that Castro's guerrillas undertook against military outposts in and around the mountains increased, forcing the government to withdraw from all its posts in the region. By the spring of 1958, the rebels controlled all of the mountainous areas in the Oriente province, controlling a hospital, schools, a printing press, slaughterhouse, landmine factory, and a cigar-making factory. <laughs> you can't forget the cigar-making factory. Get it in early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's really like, cool, though, because it, it does speak to like, a lot of people when they think about revolution, they think about the, the really visceral, violent part of it, and they don't think about a lot of the infrastructural parts of it. Mm-hmm. 
not just controlling land or factories, but like, you know, getting your name out there. Uh, I mean, even right now, the, the Zapatistas are on a mission to Europe to speak with European leaders, which is completely unprecedented. And it, this is one of those bids for international attention and, and recognition that can do essentially what you described Castro to do is, is get people there to interview you, to get you in the spotlight, to understand your cause. And then you sort of manifest that destiny that you don't currently have. Did you say the Zapatistas? Yeah. That's awesome. I didn't realize that they were still yeah. like a significant force. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, they control um, very small Southern autonomous regions in Mexico, but um, make sure I'm not being an idiot. You know, out of all the anarchists that I've argued with online, they hardly ever mention Zapatistas, which you think would be one of the first things they would point to oh, yeah. like with Rojava, like as one of their success stories. You'd think that's like a, a real anarchist accomplishment there. Like, it's huge. I mean, it, it's, they, they did anarcho-syndicalism. They did it. Yeah. And it's still there. And the Mexican government's like, I guess we're just dealing with this. Um, yeah, everybody wants to talk about the fucking Chaz and shit. And it's like, dude, w- w- <laughs> exhausting. But yeah, they're going to Spain. <laughs> They're they're sailing to Spain, <laughs> like currently. That's so sick, dude. <laughs> you know, something that I've been thinking about for a long time and that I've just never really had much of a reason to mention on the podcast is like, I constantly, this is one of the most frustrating things for me. It's like, I constantly see people tweeting or just in Instagram comments or whatever they're, they're on social media and they're saying, everybody's got good ideas. You know what I mean? Like, whether it's like, oh, uh, Congress people should not be able to legislate uh, or buy stocks on, in companies that they're legislating uh, that they're writing legislation for that would affect that stock price directly. Or, sure. you know, cops should have to have their body cameras on all the time um, because they always use the argument that if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear or whatever. And all I want to say when I see anybody come up with these amazing ideas, like any of those, I just want to say, okay, cool. What's your plan to put that into action? You know what I mean? Like you can sit there and tweet all day. You could sit there and come up with all these great ideas. There's no shortage of good ideas. You know what I mean? It's like, but what is your plan to actually at a certain point, you have to move past that. You have to move past the level of coming up with cool ideas and then think about actual systems of power and organization of power and like how power actually works in the real world. And it's like, unless you have some kind of organized movement, whether it's anarchist or Marxist or whatever, even like whether you oppose states or not, like you have to have some kind of method and a plan to institute any of that, to implement anything at all. I don't know. It's very yeah. frustrating to me. Well, yeah, totally. And, but that's the thing with, with what you were just talking about with Castro is not only was he fortifying those needs on the front of necessary violence, but also on the front of not just actively recruiting people in Cuba, but saying like, all right, we're going to have this French journalist come stay with us so that now there's people in France who are mm-hmm. looking at, at the Cuban cause and what are we doing and why are we doing it? And then there's this modicum of international support and buzz that uh, you're changing people's thinking. You're not just changing thinking at the barrel end of a gun. And I think that that was really, it sounds Mm -hmm. increasingly like it was very important for Castro's success because all odds were against them. Yeah. All right. So um, here I have a timeline of events here that I kind of want to go through to give people an idea of just how much violent resistance they were facing from the U.S. directly and from U.S. funded Gusano groups in Latin America. So now we're skipping past the revolution itself where they, you know, actually successfully defeated the Batista regime and getting into the post-revolution era and all the interference from the CIA. 
Um, this is a long list, and I think I may only get through a portion of it. I'll say I definitely got a bit carried away by adding events from here because there were just so many interesting pieces of it. And even the amount that I have here is a small fraction of what I found on this website called uh, the National Security Archive. And it was in a section called the Bay of Pigs Invasion, a chronology of events. Um, so here is a State Department memo from April 6, 1960, regarding the goal of U.S. interventions in Cuba. Quote, every possible means should be undertaken promptly to weaken the economic life of Cuba. The memo called for, quote, a line of action which, while as adroit and inc inconspicuous as possible, makes the greatest inroads in denying money and supplies to Cuba to decrease monetary and real wages and bring about hunger, desperation, and overthrow of government. Socialism doesn't work, bro. Ooh. You know what's funny, too? January is, of 19... Uh, Go ahead, sorry. What, when was that? That was um, uh, April 1960. Okay. I, I will see your uh, 1960 quote with an 1820 quote from Thomas Jefferson, uh -huh. who says, uh, quote, the most interesting addition which could ever be made to the system of our states is the desire to procure Cuba as the gateway to the Americas. Oh, my God. So this has been a thing for a long time. Yeah. Geopolitically, I mean, it's true. It's that that's the gateway to North and South America. Um, but the U.S. has been jacking off over this for a long time. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> So I actually, that one in 1960 is a little ahead of the game. I just popped it in there because it was such a damning quote from just a, a CIA memo. Yeah, that's pretty unrepentant. Yeah. So going back to January of 1959, New Year's Day, the 26th of July movement, ousted Batista. In his victory speech, Castro declares this new revolution will not be like the 1898, quote, when the North Americans came and made themselves masters of our country. A week later, the United States recognized the new Cuban government. In a memo to the president, John Foster Dulles says, quote, the provisional government appear, appears free from communist taint, and there are indications that it intends to pursue friendly relations with the United States. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong on both counts, sir. Yeah, good try. <laughs> um, April of 1959, during Fidel Castro's first post-revolution trip to Washington, he meets with then-Vice President Richard Nixon for three and a half hours. Nixon says in a four-page secret memo to Eisenhower and Alan Dulles, quote, I spent as oh, much time as I could trying... <laughs> I spent as much Sorry. time as I could trying to emphasize that he had the great gift of leadership, but that it was the responsibility of a leader not always to follow public opinion, but to help direct it in proper channels, not to give the people what they think they want at a time of emotional stress, but to make them want what they ought to have. How do you like that, Jaren? <laughs> Listen, I know what's good for you, okay? Just yeah. shut up. Yeah. That sounds like also, U.S. I leadership mindset right there. I just finished a podcast from Behind the Bastards on the Dulles Brothers, mm -hmm. and it is insane. Uh, definitely yeah. not the time to talk about it because it's far too time consuming. But like the level of just like malevolence and narcissism from these two is incredible. Yeah, I think in addition to an episode on just CIA meddling, we'll also have to do an episode just on the United Fruit Company and the overthrow of Guatemala, Guatemala and everything, because. Um, I don't think the CIA was even a thing at that point, right? It wasn't still like the OSS or like it wasn't officially founded back then. I don't know. It might have been. I have to get my no. timelines correct. But. Yeah, it, it wasn't founded back then, but we were still doing plenty of that stuff. Just there wasn't yeah, all the same like an entire agency dedicated to just that. But I just loved that quote because that's what leadership is, right? Not giving the people what they need and improving their lives, but convincing them that they should want less from their government and just, just be happy seeing that the wealthy get everything that they want. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, rugged individualism at its best. <laughs> Nixon continued in that memo. He said, quote, it was apparent that while he paid lip service to such institutions as freedom of speech, press, and religion, that his primary concern was with developing programs for economic progress. What a jerk, right? Jesus. Nixon concludes that Castro is, quote, either incredibly naive about communism or is under communist discipline. But he also expresses his own appraisal of Castro as a man. Quote, the one fact we can be sure of, he said, is that he has those indefinable qualities which make him a leader of men. Whatever we may think of him, he is going to be a great factor in the development of Cuba and very possibly in the development of Latin American affairs generally. He's right about one thing. Yeah, he was on point with that. October 1959, President Eisenhower approves a program proposed by the Department of State in agreement with the CIA to support elements in Cuba opposed to the Castro government. The operations are intended to make Castro's downfall seem to be the result of his own mistakes. As a part of this program, Cuban exiles mount seaborne raids against Cuba from U.S. territory. Also in the fall of 1959, we have this character, Manuel Artime, that we haven't mentioned before, and I just found out about him this past week, and he's pretty much like the leader of the Gusanos. So Manuel Artime was at one time a member of the rebel army of Fidel Castro, but later was a political leader of the Brigade 2506 land forces in the failed Bay of Pigs invasion in April 1961. In 1958, after being arrested twice by Batista police, Artime fled to the Sierra Maestra range in eastern Cuba and joined Fidel Castro's guerrillas, attaining the rank of lieutenant. After the Castro victory in 1959, he was promoted to captain and placed in charge of the Agrarian Reform Administration in the Oriente province. Late in 1959, with help from the CIA, Dr. Artime fled to Mexico and denounced Mr. Castro as a communist. Artime's first CIA contact was Bernard L. Barker who was later convicted in the break-in at the Democratic Party's headquarters in the Watergate office, an apartment complex Whoa. in Washington. <laughs> Dude, there's so many threads to pull out here, man. <laughs> what a resume. <laughs> in the Fuck. 1970s, Artime organized the Miami Watergate Defense Relief Fund, collecting $21,000 for the convicted Watergate burglars, a number of whom were American or Cuban veterans of the Bay of Pigs operation. And uh, so going back to the fall of 1959... Manuel Artime participates in a secret two-day meeting at the National Institute of Agrarian Reform in Havana. Numerous high officials of the revolution, including Fidel Castro and Che Guevara, attend the meeting. According to notes he takes on this, quote, unforgettable reunion, the discussion focuses on, quote, the true goals of the revolution. He quotes Castro, who defines democracy as, quote, a meeting of a group of men who know the road on which to take the people, that freely discuss the things that they are going to do, having in their hands all the power of the state to do it. Castro also decides that the state will take possession of all land holdings, eliminating private property. Based. The meeting of this, quote, Criollo Kremlin, according to Artimo, provides the catalyst for the beginning of my rebellion, as he put it. Meaning Artimo's own rebellion against the new Cuban revolutionary government. That's what you would call a counter-revolutionary. Uh, November 1959, Manuel Artime travels undercover to Mexico and makes contact with other Cuban exiles, again, gusanos, a Bible is used for coding messages. Dr. Lino Fernandez is asked to begin stockpiling weapons and to create a network of internal security and intelligence. Also in November, a memo to President Eisenhower describes the changing policy towards Cuba. Quote, All actions of the United States government should be designed to encourage within Cuba and elsewhere in Latin America opposition to the extremist, anti-American course of the Castro regime. However, in achieving this objective, the United States should avoid giving the impression of direct pressure or intervention against Castro, except where defense of legitimate United States interest is involved. December 11, 1959, J.C. King, 
head of the CIA's Western Division, writes a memo for Richard Bissell and CIA Director Alan Dulles stating that Castro has now established a dictatorship of the far left. Hell yeah. <laughs> the intelligence community establishes, or sorry, the intelligence community estimates an increase in Cuban support for other revolutionary movements in Latin America and, quote, rapid nationalization of the banks, industry, and commerce sectors. The memorandum states that, quote, violent action is the only means of breaking Castro's grip on power, listing as the U.S. objective, quote, the overthrow of Castro within one year. King also recommends that, quote, through consideration, thorough consideration be given to the elimination of Fidel Castro, marking the first time that the idea of assassination is committed to paper. January 1960, the CIA sets up a task force, WH4, branch four of the Western Hemisphere Division, to implement President Eisenhower's request for an ambitious covert program to overthrow the Castro government. Just in that same month of January, the U.S. conducted at least 10 different bombing raids on Cuban factories, sugarcane farms, and urban areas. There were also industrial sabotage operations, as we mentioned in our first Cuban Revolution episode. And in more than one of these attacks, there were either bombs that failed to go off and had inscriptions on them that showed that they were American-made, or in the case of an attack on the Matanzas province, the plane blew up in midair, and the pilot was identified as Robert Ellis Frost from the ID cards he was carrying. So he was an American pilot, nice. and that's pretty much given away the game there. Very covert. Nicely done. I mean, it's like, they at least, when we were reading about that one section where they painted their planes to look like, uh, they painted them to look like Cuban planes. They were taking off from Nicaragua, right. and they painted them as Cuban planes and then bombed Cuban air forces. Like, at least they took an effort there. Let's see. On January 25th, President Eisenhower holds a conference to discuss the situation in Cuba. The president said that Castro begins to look like a madman. Ambassador Bonzel, also at the conference, adds, quote, Castro is a very conspiratorial individual who tries to create the impression that he and Cuba are beleaguered. He's an extreme leftist and is strongly anti-American. Nice. That doesn't sound bad. <laughs> I know. I mean, but then he also makes it seem like... Like, it's just gaslighting. He's like, they're bombing the country and its infrastructure, sometimes with planes painted to look like they're not American, like I said, and they're conducting right. secret operations to try to cripple the country and topple his government, and then they call Castro crazy for thinking that the United States might not be the wholesome ally that it's pretending to be, like... Right. Well, I mean, it's the same shit they did with Venezuela. Is You know, they, they control the oil interest there, make sure that they don't export anything else. They finally nationalize the oil, try and do something else, and then they embargo the shit out of them, um, and then blame socialism for the poverty. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, honestly, U.S. imperialism is like, as far as consent is concerned, I would say like 90% gaslighting. Yeah. And not only that, it's just a really hacky playbook. Like, it's just the same thing over and over again. Right. Yeah. Is it sarin gas? Is it a little baggie filled with white powder? What, what is it this time? <clears throat> is it, uh, quote unquote, concentration camps that we can't find any satellite evidence of for some reason? Like... That's what I'm saying, dude. You can't believe anything. They could be telling me the truth, and I'd be like, fuck you. Like, you, you burned me too many times. It's messed up. Like, maybe, look, maybe you're right about China. I don't know, but I, because you're saying it, I'm not going to believe it. Because fuck you. Yeah. Don't say that to Dunk. He'll be like, yeah, see, the vaccines are bullshit. COVID's fake. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. He, he, <laughs> this is a sidetrack, but he had the worst meme I've seen today and i'm gonna send it to you Lay it on me buddy it was a bunch of care bears with the different anarchist flags and then there's one in the middle with a vaccine crossed out on it, and they're all holding hands and it's something about all the friends we made along the way oh i saw that that made me want to kill yeah. him and then myself it's like uh, <laughs> 
I saw that because it was something like what it said was like uh, maybe the extremists were all the friends we made along the way, but it was all Care Bears and they all just were different anarchist symbols. I'm like, so you're not all, you're all just one type of like idiot. Like, and well, then I'm sitting there just like, you're the reason people hate us. But anyway, this has nothing to do with Cuba. Yeah, no. I just, I can't resist an opportunity to shit on Dunk. Oh, I, I love that about you. It's great. So let's move on to uh, mid-February 1960. A CIA briefing on, to the National Security Council reports on the visit of Soviet official Anastas Mikoyan to Cuba. The USSR, it states, has shifted from cautious attitude to one of active support. The briefing also indicates that opposition to, Cu- opposition to Castro is growing, but that, quote, the anti-Castro groups both inside and outside the country lack organization and effective leadership. February 21st, 1960, police detain a group of internal resistance forces that try to throw a hand that try to throw hand grenades at the Havana carnival. There was a lot of things in here. Um, and I didn't list most of them because it was just like very similar events over and over again, where Castro or his army or his police or whatever kept catching these people. And they often just would execute them like 40, 40, 50 at a time. They just like put them up against the wall. So it was kind of good to see. Was that, uh, including or not including, I'm assuming it wasn't the, the lady assassin that they sent to kill Castro. And he just ended up like, having a romantic weekend with her. <laughs> <laughs> no, she died, she died of natural causes lo- much later in life. But uh, yeah, she pretty much worked for the CIA or the FBI like forever, like for her entire life. And uh, but also still like seemed to genuinely be in love with Fidel. So it was like kind of a mixed bag there. It's one of the best things I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> this is a memo f- uh, sent to Artime on, quote, propaganda and psychological warfare of the FRD, the Revolutionary Democratic Front in Cuba. The goals he writes, or sorry, the goal he writes is to make the FRD known inside of Cuba to win over sectors of the country and break the red power through creating a mystique to oppose communism based on Christian principles and the democratic traditions of our people. Propaganda will be broadcast by radio. PSYOPs should include a quote campaign directed at a de- at demoralizing the military based in terror. A radio and flyer campaign to identify Castro's intelligence officials and communist spies promoting civic resistance and spread the word about the resistance and its operations. Among the recommendations are to, quote, blow up Castro's radio station, the Valles del Inra, which is interfering with Radio Swan's transmissions. Actions and sabotage coordinated, coordinated with written and radio propaganda give life to the slogans and civic resistance. I'll get into Radio Swan here some more in a bit. Um, March 4th and 5th, 1960. Sabotage of a French ship La Cubra in Havana Harbor carrying arms for Cuba kills about 100 people and wounds some 300. The following day, at the funerals for the victims, Fidel Castro accuses the United States for, of responsibility for the action. Not really that far-fetched, to be honest. No, not at all. March 17, 1960, at an Oval Office meeting with high-ranking national security officials, President Eisenhower approves a CIA policy paper titled, quote, A Program of Covert Action Against the Castro Regime. The CIA plan involves four main courses of action. One, form a moderate opposition group in exile whose slogan will be to restore the revolution which Castro has betrayed. Two, create a medium wave radio station to broadcast into Cuba, probably on Swan Island, south of Cuba. Three, create a covert intelligence and action organization within Cuba responsive to the orders and directions of the exile opposition. And four, begin training a paramilitary force outside Cuba and in a second phase, train paramilitary cadres for immediate deployment into Cuba to organize, train, and lead resistance forces recruited there. During the meeting, Eisenhower states that he knows of, quote, no better plan for dealing with this situation, but is concerned about leakage and breach of security. 
He argues that everyone must be prepared to deny its existence and only two or three people should have contact with the groups involved, agitating Cubans to do most of what must be done. The president tells Mr. Dulles that he thinks he should go ahead with the plan and the operations, but that, quote, our hands should not show in anything that is done. So they begin right away. Still in that same month in March 1960, the CIA begins training 300 guerrillas initially in the U.S. and the Canal Zone. Following an agreement with President Idiguras in June, training shifts to Guatemala. The CIA begins to work to install a powerful radio station on the Greater Swan Island, 97 miles off the coast of Honduras. Still in March, the same month, internal resistance forces set fire simultaneously to different cane plantations around Havana, destroying 400,000 arrobas, and arroba is uh, 25 pounds of sugar cane. Um, so 400,000 arrobas in the Cunagua Central Camagüey province. Planes caused seven fires in the zones bordering Matanzas and Las Villas. Uh, March 27th, 28th, Fidel Castro speaks to a gathering of militia in Cuidad Libertad. He says, quote, We also are organizing ourselves, in the first place so that they do not carry out aggression against us, and in the second place, if they do, they will have to pay very dearly for their imprudence and audacity in finding themselves on the soil of our country. I mean, throughout this whole thing, he just comes off like such a badass all the time. Yeah, he definitely does. And it's just, I know this is old news, but it never ceases to amaze me that the U.S. manages to shroud itself in this idyllic, you know, champion of human rights. And then they'll do shit like just go and just burn everybody's sugarcane, their livelihood, the, their main, one of their main exports, mm-hmm. with the explicit and admitted purpose of making them go into poverty. Like, this is all public information yeah. of just shit that we do regularly. And then, you know, even daily, we have the president and Congress talking about human rights abroad. And, and it's like, oh, this was, this was only like 70 years ago. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It never ceases to amaze me. That's something I think about a lot, too, is like when you say that this is all public information, like at this point, that's even a meme. Like, I think it was um, how did somebody phrase it? it was like right wing memes. And it's like um, this like satanic cabal that we have no proof of, like satanic panic bullshit, like these evil, sick Democrats who are like enabling pedophiles or whatever. And it's like you ask them for any evidence and they're just like, oh, well, um, who's it? Marina Abramovich does some weird uh, performance art in the MoMA or some shit. It's like, okay, so you don't really have any evidence (laughs) whatsoever, but it's like, then we have actual documents and historical events on our side. And like, that's our conspiracy theories. It's just like actual facts and shit that we know happened because the government admitted to assassinating people and like doing all this shit. It's like one side is not like the other here. No, horseshoe theory is bullshit, man. (laughs) Um, So see the following day, Castro warns, if there is an invasion, the war, they can be sure, will be to the death. Also in late March, David Atlee Phillips, a CIA contract employee who until recently had maintained a public relations company in Havana, is selected by the CIA as chief of propaganda for the Cuba Project. At operation headquarters in Washington, Phillips is told that the Cuba Project will go by the Guatemala scenario. Phillips had performed the same function in PB Success, the 1954 operation against Guatemalan President Jacobo Arbenz. During the coup by a CIA-directed exile force, Phillips had operated a clandestine station supporting them. CIA operative E. Howard Hunt, also a veteran of the Guatemala operation, is assigned, to, is assigned the position of chief of political action for the project. He is primarily responsible, his primary responsibility is to form a government in exile to replace Castro's government following the invasion. So they were already preparing for like, the government they were going to replace Castro with because they were just expecting this to work as well as it did in Guatemala. April 23, 1960, Cuba's foreign minister Raul Roa declares that, quote, 
I can guarantee categorically that Guatemalan territory is being used at this very time with the complicity of President Idiguras and the assistance of United Fruit as a bridgehead for an invasion of our country. May 14, 1960, the New York Times reports that a new commercial radio station will begin broadcasting soon from Swan Island. The station, the Times reports, plans to broadcast nothing of greater international import than waltzes, Latin American music, and commercials. <laughs> May 17, 1960, uh, Radio Swan goes on the air on schedule. According to the CIA, the station's, signal, the station's signal reaches not only its target area of Cuba, but the entire Caribbean as well. The station's programs are taped in studios in Miami, then routed through the Swan transmitter. Bob Davis, CIA station chief in Guatemala City, receives a message instructing him to build an airport. After getting Guatemalan permission, the agency contracts to have the airport built Retal Hulu. I can't even. Retal Hulu, we'll say it that. The agency contracts yeah. to have the airport built at Retal Hulu. still better than what Sterling would have come up with. <laughs> Maju Hadin. <laughs> the agency contracts to have the airport built at Reta Hulu in 30 days for a million dollars. The airport is built in 90 days and ultimately costs $1.8 million. U.S. government efficiency. Oh, Over God. the next few months, the CIA and the counter-revolutionary groups based in Guatemala continue to train militias in Guatemala, broadcast anti-Castro and anti-communist propaganda, and conduct covert sabotage operations in Cuba. July 21st, 1960, CIA headquarters sends a, a cable to Havana regarding upcoming meeting between a Cuban volunteer agent and Raul Castro. Cable states that, quote, possible removal top three leaders is receiving serious consideration at HQS. Inquiring whether the Cuban agent is sufficiently motivated to risk arranging an accident for Raul Castro and offering $10,000 after successful completion. After the agent agrees to carry out the task, the CIA cancels the assignment. Let's see. August 1960, the Miami Herald considers publishing a story by David Kraslow about CIA training of Cuban exiles near Homestead, Florida. The story reports that the Justice and State Departments are unhappy about this violation of the Neutrality Act and are pressuring President Eisenhower to move all such CIA training operations, and that the exiles are to be sent into Cuba to wage guerrilla war against Castro. After meeting with Alan Dulles and being informed that the publication would be most harmful to national interest, the paper's editors decide not to print the story. It's very nice of them. It was also in the first week of August that the Cuban government passes a law to nationalize U.S. businesses. The Cuban electricity company, the telephone company, <laughs> petrol refineries, and 36 sugar refineries with an approximate value of 800 million pesos, which I can only imagine what that would be in today's dollars. Eat shit, buddy. <laughs> August 18th, 1960, President Eisenhower approves a budget of $13 million for the covert anti-Castro operation, as well as the use of the Department of Defense personnel and equipment. However, it is specified at this time that no United States military personnel are to be used in, co in combat status. August 28th, at the seventh consultative meeting of the ministers of the OAS, Cuba proposes a measure concerning the aggression by one American state against another. Nineteen governments vote against it, and Cuba withdraws from the committee. A few days later, on September 2nd, at a demonstration in the Plaza Civica to respond to the OAS vote, Fidel Castro declares, quote, If they continue the economic aggression against our country, we will continue nationalizing U.S. businesses. Um, so just I mean to I mean, still one of these things is not equal to the other man <laughs> like it's I mean so you oh think like, here Fidel's going about it the right way like he's going to this meeting of all these countries and he's like you know we should just have a measure like this is just a legal thing like you have a measure concerning the aggression by one American state against another and 19 government governments vote against it and he was just like alright well we're just gonna take our ball and go home and then they just start continuing to nationalize businesses. And they say, like, look, if you're going to keep doing this shit that we know you're doing, we're just going to keep nationalizing businesses. So fucking deal with it. 
Yeah. Well, and, and also like to nationalize a business means, you know, cutting out the board of directors, cutting out the CEO, cutting out the, the uh, stockholders on the, the New York exchange. It doesn't mean that people in the factory are losing their jobs or going hungry or whatever. Everything tangibly still stays intact for the people who live and work there. So these things are still not equal. Yeah. You know, kicking, kicking a capitalist and a couple of board members out of your fucking country. You might say it's more effective than. I mean, yeah, you can pay the workers more, but that's kind of why we're here, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, September 26, 1960, during an address before the United Nations General Assembly, Assembly, Fidel Castro charges that the U.S. has taken over Swan Island and has set up a very powerful broadcasting station there, which it has placed at the disposal of war criminals. September 28, 1960, the CIA attempts its first drop of weapons and supplies to the Cuban resistance. The air crew tries to drop an arms pack for 100 men to an agent waiting on the ground. They miss the drop zone by seven miles and land the weapons on top of a dam where they are picked up by Castro's forces. The agent is caught and shot. <laughs> the plane gets lost on its way to Guatemala and lands in Mexico. Unfortunately, not all the arms drops were this unsuccessful. There were several more in the following weeks, and most of them did, in fact, get the munitions to their intended recipients. But I just thought How that was pretty funny. How do you have this much it. funding and fuck up that bad? <laughs> <laughs> Still at the end of September, Senator John F. Kennedy, running for president, attacks the Eisenhower administration for, quote, permitting a communist menace to arise only 90 miles from the shores of the United States. October 12, 1960, five convicted internal resistance force members captured in, es- in Escambre are executed by firing squad. Eight others, including an American, Anthony Salvard, who landed in Bahia de Navas, are also executed. And then the Cuban government nationalizes 382 big businesses, including manufacturers of sugar, liquor, beer, perfume, soap, textiles, milk products, and also banks. Uh, March 13, 1961, a bomb explodes in the, Nobel Academy, in the Nobel Academy in the Vibora district, wounding seven students and a professor. In Matanzas, a plane drops thousands of anti-Castro pamphlets over the city. In Santa Ana, a plane drops live phosphorus over cane fields, hitting a house on the edge of the cane plantation. Three explosive devices go off in the capital. Uh, March 10th, CIA Director Dulles, preparing to meet with President Kennedy, is briefed on the agency's efforts to create a provisional government of exile leaders. Quote, At the covert instigation of the agency, a memo for Dulles begins, six leading figures of the Cuban opposition met in New York City. The purpose of the meeting was to agree on procedures for electing a revolutionary council and to draw up a minimal political and economic program. So that's all I included um, in the timeline, because once you get to there, you're getting pretty close to the Bay of Pigs invasion. And we all know how the Bay of Pigs invasion went, because uh, we discussed that in a first episode. Long story short, they dropped all these people there. Um, Fidel Castro and his army dealt with them handily, and it did not work. And it was shortly after that that we get into the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we'll start on now. What you got, Darren? Just real quick, too, just to add in, um, in between those events and during those events, I mean, just to show the desperation from the CIA, from the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and all of these uh, government agencies that are working on behalf of American big business, this is exactly where Operations Northwoods, Mongoose, and Bingo happened, which were... um, initiatives mm-hmm. that were approved by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, by the, the um, what would be the CIA and what was the CIA under Dulles, to false flag not only in Cuba, but in the United States. They, they wanted to commit acts of terrorism on U.S. soil to U.S. citizens and blame the Cubans. 
And see, this is the, the differential yeah. between right wing nutbags and us is they actually declassified this shit. I think it was an FOIA request, or if not, I guess they just thought no one was going to fucking Google it. But yeah, they were talking about doing shit like shooting <laughs> up people in Miami and blaming Castro. Like, that's how far they were down the rabbit yeah. hole with this. And um, I have my own suspicions about Bay of Pigs and, and the fact that these initiatives got to Kennedy's desk and he didn't sign them. So that's about as far as I'll get with conspiracy stuff that can't be proven. I, I have to wonder what the deal was really with Kennedy and defying these powers that be, given what links they would go to. But yeah, I mean, obviously Bay of Pigs and then uh, shortly thereafter, they just got fully absorbed in the Red Scare with what you were going to talk about with the missile crisis. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy because like, like you say, all this stuff is just out there. All these things I just got from websites that you can easily find. Wikipedia has uh, as pages for every single one of these operations. They've got pages for Operation Mongoose, Operation Northwoods, um, all of the, the covert operations they've against Cuba and the false flag attacks they were planning to do against the United States' own citizens. And it's like you said, the best the right-wingers can come up with is that the Vegas shooting was like a, a false flag attack, and they have zero evidence for it. Right. All right, so let's get into uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, as we discussed previously, after the failed Bay of Pigs invasion, Fidel Castro made his speech declaring the Cuban Revolution to be a socialist one. And he said in that speech, quote, I am a Marxist-Leninist and shall be one until the end of my life. So awesome. Um, but this put... Um, Nikita Khrushchev in a precarious position, the leader of the Soviet Union at the time, because the Soviet Union couldn't give Cuba military aid without sparking a war with the United States. So Fidel was a bit surprised at the lack of a warm response from the Soviets when he made this declaration. He's basically thumbing his nose at the U.S. by doing this. Um, not that that wasn't something he had always done, but this is a particularly bold move on his part, seeing as the U.S. was always accusing him of being a communist anyway. So he's like sticking out his neck, and he expected some type of response from the Soviet Union. And at that point, Castro had even sent his 13-year-old son, Fidelito, to go to school in Moscow. Um, but it, was up, it wasn't until the next month, this is January of 1962, that the Soviet Union gave Cuba the recognition that Castro was hoping for. And I would say that he deserved. Early in 1962, Soviet newspapers started praising Cuba as a model of Marxist-Leninist efficiency. And this is something that was kind of new to me. Like, I had learned about the Cuban Missile Crisis briefly in high school, but I never heard this part about it. The whole reason for the Soviet Union placing missiles in Cuba in the first place was in response to the U.S. placing missiles in Turkey to threaten the USSR. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you knew that, right, Jaron? Uh, peripherally. I mean, it, it's, it's the same playbook that we're dealing with currently, which is Russia is consistently at a geostrategic disadvantage. It's a landlocked country. Mm -hmm. um, it can only get out through the White Sea for naval ports when it's not frozen over. And that's why Sevastopol in Ukraine, Olms in Syria, and Cuba are of the utmost importance for Russia. And at, at the same time that it's at a disadvantage, mm -hmm. the U.S. and the Western world as a whole loves to boogeyman Russia. That's just what they do. And at the same time, mm -hmm. even though NATO wasn't a thing, yes, Turkey already had nuclear weapons. And nowadays, Anybody that's yeah. that's a NATO affiliate is by proxy a nuclear power, and NATO keeps expanding. Yeah. So, I mean, getting back to the crisis, I'll be the first to admit that, like, I was not super into paying attention in class back in high school. So I, I very could have easily missed something like my teachers mentioning that the U.S. had placed missiles in Turkey, and that's what started the crisis. But let me repeat again, just, you know. So people get it. The United States started the crisis by putting nuclear missiles in Turkey as a direct provocation to the Soviet Union. 
because that's just something I never remember hearing about it. But I also like was looking about it, looking at it online, like on some different websites to see how much that gets mentioned when you look at like American sources and stuff for just reading about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Here's an example from an article on thoughtco.com. I don't know what their slant is, but they say in July 1962, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, in response to the Bay of Pigs and the presence of American Jupiter ballistic missiles in Turkey, secretly agreed with Fidel Castro to place Soviet nuclear missiles in Cuba in order to prevent the United States from attempting future invasions of the island. So they at least mention it, although they don't focus, you know, so much on the, the missiles in Turkey. But this is from history.state.gov. After the failed U.S. attempt to overthrow the Castro regime in Cuba with the Bay of Pigs invasion, and while the Kennedy administration planned Operation Mongoose, in July 1962, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev reached a secret agreement with Cuban Premier Fidel Castro to place Soviet nuclear missiles in Cuba to deter any future invasion attempt. So they mentioned that the U.S. was trying to overthrow another country's government, um, but they don't mention at all the U.S. being the aggressor in this situation as far as like placing nuclear missiles in Turkey. Anyway. Well, that's because whenever the U.S. does something preliminary like that, it's for the protection of all the people in the region, Mike. Right, it's for freedom. Definitely not to saber rattle or, yeah, those are freedom nuke warheads. But this is not even mentioning the other methods that the U.S. already had for bombing the Soviet Union. So according to physicist Pavel Podvig, Soviet bombers at the time, quote, could deliver about 270 nuclear weapons to U.S. territory. By contrast, the United States had thousands of warheads that it could deliver via 1,576 air, strategic air command bombers, as well as 183 Atlas and Titan intercontinental ballistic missiles, or ICBMs, 144 Polaris missiles via nine nuclear submarines, and 10 newly built Minuteman ICBMs. So it's already like a ridiculous imbalance of power as far as like nuclear warheads are concerned. But anyway, getting back to the actual crisis... Khrushchev sent some diplomats to Cuba in early 1962, and they told Castro that the plan was to station at least 40 nuclear missiles in Cuba, as well as garrisons and anti-aircraft batteries to defend them, essentially turning the island into an armored launching pad capable of delivering a nuclear strike anywhere in the U.S. And this is a quote from Khrushchev that I thought was hilarious. He says, quote, why not throw a hedgehog at Uncle Sam's pants? (laughs) This was at a meeting in April 1962. It's hilarious. (laughs) That sounds like something John Cleese would say. (laughs) (laughs) You got to do it with like a Russian accent, though, which I can't do. Still, Um, Castro didn't immediately go for the idea. He was smart enough to realize that the Soviet Union wasn't doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. This was obviously a strategic move on their part, and they were kind of using Cuba as a piece of their arsenal in their struggle against the U.S. Um, But as part of this agreement, Cuba wasn't going to have ownership or even control over these missiles. And Castro was worried that the U.S. would attack Cuba during their construction as a preemptive measure. Definitely sounds like something they would do. Yeah. Um, but in the end, Castro knew that he already had put a lot of pressure on the USSR to defend Cuba in the interests of socialism, and that Cuba didn't really have much else to offer in return other than sugar. So in July and August of 1962, various officials in the Cuban government visited Russia to negotiate details of the agreement, two of which were Raul Castro and Che Guevara. While Raul was pretty much on board with what the Soviets were offering, Che was more reluctant. He didn't like the way that Khrushchev seemed to downplay the threat that the US posed to Cuba. And eventually... They settled on a deal that ended up with 40,000 Soviet troops being stationed in Cuba, as well as the missiles, of course. This was also when Operation Mongoose was started, which is what all the wacky assassination attempts were part of. Uh, One quote I found just the other day from Castro was, quote, If surviving assassination attempts was an Olympic sport, I would win a gold medal. Which is true. (laughs) Dude, with the quotes, though, this guy was great. He's great, man. (laughs) 
The anti-Castro militias were such a problem at this point that the Soviets ruled out putting missiles in the thick jungles of Cuba. Even though that would provide ideal cover for the construction, they determined it would also be the perfect setting for those CIA-backed gusanos to attack them. So they had to go with the more open locations, which made it much more risky since the U.S. could see them with spy planes, which they had been flying over Cuba every single day since the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. And October 14, 1962, that's exactly what happened. One of the spy planes successfully photographed a missile site at San Cristobal. Eight days later, JFK made a televised speech announcing this evidence to the world, and also that there would now be a blockade preventing any shipments coming into Cuba. Not just weapons from the Soviets, but anything at all from any other country. And this is the start of the actual missile crisis itself. Sounds very humane. Yeah. Immediately after Kennedy's announcement, Castro made one of his signature speeches detailing the long history of U.S. aggression against Cuba. And regarding the missiles, he said, What have we done? We have defended ourselves. That is all. Were the imperialists expecting that after their first hostile act, our people would surrender, that the revolution would raise a white flag? And so, in this situation, this is crazy, because when I was reading about it, like, Castro is like, he almost comes off like a madman. Like, he, he wants the, U, like, the Soviets to just launch missiles at, at the U.S. He just, like, he wants to set things off. But um, Castro urged Khrushchev to declare that any attack on Cuba would be considered an attack on the Soviet Union and to station troops throughout Europe as a deterrent. Khrushchev didn't do this since he didn't want to escalate things even further, and because the U.S. ships enforcing the blockade were outside Cuban waters, there wasn't really anything that Castro could do. It was basically a game between the U.S. and the Soviets, with Cuba acting as the pawn. Um, but there were still daily spy planes flying over Cuba, and Castro was convinced that this meant the United States was preparing for, an another, for another attack. Which, you know, again, is not unreasonable considering past events. Um, so Fidel sent a letter to Khrushchev saying he expected the U.S. to attack within three days, and that if this attack occurred... The, US should respond, the USSR should respond with the full force of their nuclear arsenal. And I can't exactly confirm their thoughts or their motivations, but all the sources I found on this, on the missile crisis at least, describe both Castro and Che Guevara as being very hardline about this crisis and seeing nuclear war as a preferable alternative to letting capitalism win. Castro also ordered the Cuban army to engage any American spy planes that entered their airspace, and within 24 hours a spy plane was shot down with Soviet anti-aircraft weapons. This ratcheted up tensions significantly, and the U.S. was loosening their safeguards around their nukes so that they could be fired with minimal approval. And this just makes me think of that movie, uh, Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, definitely. Um, Castro thought this was going to be the final straw that would get Khrushchev to attack the U.S., but it was actually the opposite. Um, because Fidel was seemingly so eager to kick off a nuclear war, this made Khrushchev all the more reluctant. And this is a quote from Sergei Khrushchev, Nikita's son. It was at this moment, not before or after, that Father felt the situation was slipping out of his control. And at the same time, Kennedy was realizing the nature of the crisis and that it was Castro, not necessarily Khrushchev, who was pushing this to the brink. Neither the U.S. nor the Soviets wanted nuclear war, and both sides were seeing Castro as the wild card. So both Kennedy and Khrushchev agreed to stop allowing their subordinates to escalate tensions and began taking steps to calm things down. On October 28th, Castro was informed that Khrushchev and Kennedy had come to an agreement that the missiles would be removed from Cuba, on the condition that there would be no U.S. invasion of Cuba. There was also a secret part of the agreement that the U.S. would remove their missiles from Turkey. But because this wasn't publicized, it made Khrushchev look weak, and it eventually led to his removal from office. Um, but so hearing this, Fidel was pissed. He had basically volunteered to sacrifice himself and all his citizens for the cause of communism, and in return, the USSR had gone behind his back and settled things with the U.S., and after this phone call that informed him about the deal, he actually smashed up his office in anger while cursing about Khrushchev. But after he calmed down, 
he announced Cuba would accept the deal, but that the U.S. would have to cease all attempts to interfere with Cuba and never violate Cuban waters or airspace again. Part of the deal that Khrushchev and Kennedy had struck was that the U.S. would be able to send inspectors to Cuba to make sure the missiles were being removed. But Castro insisted that any Americans that even set foot on Cuba would be shot dead and their bodies tossed into the ocean. <laughs> I guess I should have consulted him with all this. <laughs> uh, Cuban citizens were out in the streets chanting anti-Khrushchev slogans, and the newspapers were calling him a traitor. And as a consolation to Cuba, the USSR arranged to have the missiles shipped out to international waters where the U.S. could inspect them there. And apparently this was enough because the Cuban state media stopped denouncing Khrushchev and the citizens stopped protesting. After this, Castro was actually very depressed for a while, and what made it worse was that other communist parties in other Latin countries were praising Khrushchev for handling the crisis so well. Um, Shea was also not happy with how it ended, and it was after this that he increasingly denounced the Soviet Union, and he actually turned to more Maoist thought, which is why he soon left Cuba to help start revolutions in the Congo and Bolivia, as we mentioned in the last episode. Shea actually said that he would rather have personally fired the missiles himself if it meant destroying the USA forever. I mean, honestly, I get, I, I understand both sides. I understand their hatred, but it's, it's like one of these things that I saw the other day on like leftist uh, Instagram as they were showing like some sort of Chinese trajectory of what a nuke would do on the West coast. And it's like, you know, I do fervently hate America, but there's just so many goddamn civilians that don't have a goddamn idea what any of this is. Yeah. I understand not wanting nuclear war for sure. Yeah, definitely. But I also understand, like, if you're a revolutionary that just watched all of your shit get fucked up for the first half of your life, I, you can't really blame them for hating somebody that bad. Like, yeah. man, that's, that's pretty harrowing, man. I, I had no idea about, like, the Khrushchev-Cuban uh, split over that. That's absolutely insane. Yeah. What, if it had been Stalin, he probably would have been like, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess the U.S. is lucky he was already dead by that point. <laughs> um, so that's the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, obviously a bit anticlimactic, but considering a climax in that scenario would mean total, total nuclear war. I think that's the preferable option. I mean, as, again, like as much as we meme about hating the U.S. and everything, like I think everybody should uh, probably already does understand that we mean U.S. government, like, you know, U.S. intelligence agencies, like the people responsible for actual like atrocities committed by the U.S. state, not like U.S. citizens themselves, unless they're like chuds. And like, you know, right. fucking dumbass reactionaries who support that shit. So, well, yeah, but yeah, if they're Nazis, they can go with the CIA and all that other yeah. shit. But I mean, yeah, so that is the difference between like memeing and actual nuanced takes is that like U.S. citizens, for the most part, totally innocent. But, you know, you, you got to admire the commitment that these people had to their causes and their convictions and their revolution and everything, because. I mean, as far as I've read in, in U.S. history, Cuba, aside from the U.S. mainland, has been the consistent source of envy for the United States throughout all of history. I mean, even in the Spanish-American War, way before any of this, there's a lot of weird circumstance and hyperbole and un unsurety about the explosion of this boat called the USS Maine, I believe. Um, that initially it, it basically pushed the U.S. into the the Spanish and Cuban War and resulted in the Spanish American War, and that's where we got the Philippines. That's where we got all these Eastern Pacific islands, um, and also where we levied control over Cuba for a long time. And a lot of people think the U.S. blew up that boat ourselves so that we could get involved in the war. There's no definitive proof of that, but I would not put it past us to do such mm -hmm. a thing, especially when. 
a little bit later in the 1960s, we were talking about killing our citizens anyway to do the same fucking thing. Yeah. So, you know, or the Gulf of Tonkin or the Gulf of Tonkin. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of, you know, choose your fucking historical reference, but the fact that Cuba has managed to gain independence and retain it until 2021, that's insane. Yeah. And now you look at it and I'm sure you guys already covered this, but like while we're exporting missiles and firearms and F-35s that don't fly, their primary export aside from, you know, sugar textiles and things like that is doctors. They're sending people all over Mm -hmm. the world to heal folks while we're blowing them the fuck up. Yeah. It's, it's a really impressive country, no matter how you slice it. Yeah, I mean, that's really what it comes down to as far as Cuba's modern economy and political system is that what they're able to do with what little they have and in defiance of the United States and how the United States tries so hard to blockade and prevent them from getting anything. And they're still able to make do and actually have a good standard of living, even compared to the U.S. with what they have. Um, I actually have some stuff at the end here about their medical technology and stuff like that that we'll get to in just a little bit. Um, But yeah, I mean, just wrapping up again, the missile crisis, like those are two things that I never really realized about the crisis in general was that the U.S. started it and then Castro wanted to end it in the most fiery way possible. Like he was just, he was all about it. (laughs) But anyway, so regarding Cuba's economy, getting into like the modern day stuff. So there was another video by Bad Empanada and I just took some notes, some brief notes on it. So I guess the average salary in Cuba is 687 Cuban pesos per month, which equates like 28 U.S. dollars. But still, with that, the home ownership rate is 90%. The other 10% in public housing, um, there's no one without housing. There's no homelessness in Cuba. And also, Cuba is number five in the world of highest home ownership. Um, utilities, so again, that $28 sounds ridiculous, but utilities, electricity is $1.44 a month. Commoditized food, a pound of rice is $0.14. Cents. A pound of pineapple is $0.14. Cents. A pound of sweet potato is $0.06. Cents. These are modern prices? Yeah. Um, Public or state paid for food monthly. A pound of rice would be a dollar. I'm sorry, a penny. Um, Five eggs would be two cents. A pound of sugar is 0.0015 cents. Like fractions of a penny. Food is also freely distributed in places like hospitals, schools, elderly homes, and military facilities. And just some comparisons to the United States, 40% of average yearly income in New York City is spent on rent. As in 40, I guess the average income would be $55,000. So 40% of $55,000, Cuba spends 0%. Uh, healthcare and all costs from cancer treatment to dental care are completely free. Uh, Cuba in education is free in all, in all aspects in terms of best education systems in the world. Cuba is ranked number 32 and ranked number one in Latin America. Quote, no Latin American school system today except Cuba's is very close to high standards. This is from the World Bank. And then... This was a funny thing I saw mentioned was one scoop of ice cream at La Capella, an ice cream parlor made by Fidel Castro, is four cents. Um, and if you look up La Capella, it's a national ice cream franchise, franchise that Castro started, named after the <laughs> opera of the same name. And it's been around for decades with locations all over the island. So I thought that was pretty cool. Like not only just, you know, giving people like their basic material needs, but like ice cream, ice cream as well. It's like, why not have something nice? So I post scarcity would be so fucking dope, bro. Like <laughs> America could have so much cool free shit. Yeah. It's insane. Like a tiny country like Cuba that's all alone on the ocean that has been antagonized 
for centuries can give cancer treatment and ice cream. I, I what the fuck? Yeah, we don't get anything. <laughs> Nothing. It really is depressing the more you look into it, man. Like when you realize how this could all work and how much it could benefit people that are working so hard and how much we're all just like getting screwed by the system and like people still walk around like, what's the freest country in the world, man? Like you want to go move to Venezuela if you don't like it, like all the bullshit. But um, just in general, I don't really want to spend a lot of time talking about modern Cuba. Um, One, because this episode series was supposed to be about the Cuban revolution. And we just kind of ended up getting very sidetracked talking mostly about Fidel and Shea. But also because Pearl's Pod already did it, and they did it better than we could because they actually had guests on who have been there and can speak from experience. And um, same thing for Rev Left Radio. But I would say go check out episode 23 of Pearls of the Roundtable on Modern Cuba. It's a very good episode talking about the modern conditions there. And also Rev Left Radio has an episode from March of 2018 called Cuba Today, The Question of Markets, Reform, and the Future of Cuba. Um, you know, Rev Left is obviously a much more serious podcast than this one. And Brett does a fantastic job and has great guests on with a lot of knowledge about different topics. So both that and the Pearl's Bud episode would be better resources if you want to learn just more serious facts about modern Cuba. But that being said, I will read a couple other things I found regarding Cuba and their medical research. Um, so this is an article called Cuba has made at least three major medical innovations that we need by Anna Almandrala. So this is from March 2016. So you'll notice right away there are a couple stark differences between the United States policies regarding Cuba, even just five years ago, as opposed to now after four years of Trump. And then also now with Biden, who, as we know, doesn't seem to have any intentions to actually undo any of Trump's policies. So the article says, by most measures, the United States business business friendly environment has proven to be fertile, fertile for medical innovation. Compared to other countries, America has filed the most patents in the, in the life sciences, is conducting most of the world's clinical trials, and has published the most biomedical research. That's what makes the medical prominence of Cuba all the more surprising to those who view a free market as an essential driver of scientific discovery. Cuba is very poor, and yet the country has some of the healthiest, most long-lived residents in the world, as well as a medical invention or two that could run circles around U.S. therapies, thanks to government investment in scientific research and a preventive public health approach that views medical care as a birthright. Womp womp. The island nation, hemmed in by a 54-year trade embargo with the U.S., can't exchange goods with one of the world's largest economies and the largest medical market. Still, the country is an unlikely global leader in public health and scientific investment. Quote, if people knew about these cutting-edge treatments coming out of Cuba, people would want to have them, said Pierre Larame, executive director of the Oakland-based nonprofit organization Medical Education Cooperation with Cuba, also known as MEDIC which advocates for Cuban medical inventions in the U.S. and publishes an international peer-reviewed journal focusing on Cuban health and medicine. Uh, He says, quote, All of these arcane rules and restrictions related to the embargo that are designed to block commerce with Cuba are keeping Americans from having access to these treatment opportunities. There was a paragraph in here that I just cut out because it was a paragraph explaining that the Obama administration was relaxing trade policies with Cuba, which obviously is no longer relevant. But they continue, however, most transactions between Cuba and the U.S. are still prohibited, which is why Cuban drugs face additional regulatory hurdles for testing and marketing compared to other drugs developed overseas. Perhaps the most well-known Cuban innovation is the vaccine Simavax. Simavax targets a growth factor in cancer cells in a way that can arrest the spread of the disease. It can be used as both a treatment for lung cancer patients and a preventive measure for people at high risk of the disease. A reported 5,000 patients worldwide have been treated with Simavax. It has no known side effects and the shot cost the Cuban government $1 to make. Socialism doesn't work. Basic economics. Uh, it, it, you know, and it, it, the point is driven even further home by the fact that, like, insulin costs, I think, $3 to manufacture. 
Actually, it's even less than that. I think that that's, that's what the consumer like price would be because yeah, pennies. Like the extent to which we are getting fucked in terms of medicine in this country is insane. It, it's astronomically yeah. crazy how badly we're getting fucked. And the fact that there's a cancer vaccine yeah, yeah. that cost the Cuban government $1, you know, that, that's the tip of the proverbial iceberg, but it, it is a pretty painful tip. It just rings home for like, I think um, I, I saw a good friend of mine posted something the other day from a union worker who was saying that if they had paid out of pocket, their treatment that they needed would have been like, you know, $200, which is already insane. Um, given, I think they just needed some, mm-hmm. uh, you know, over the counter prescription, but they billed it to their insurance and it ended up costing their, their union something like six or $700 because they knew they could squeeze the union yeah. for that. They'll actually charge you more if you pay through union insurance. Yeah. It was close to 800. I saw that same thing. Yeah. So it's just, you know, from left and uh, the left and the right, you're just getting completely fucked over here. It's mind boggling. Um, continuing with that article, the New York-based Roswell Park Cancer Institute is evaluating Simovax for its use in the U.S. It's also trying to get clinical trials underway to replicate Cuban scientists' findings per U.S. Food and Drug Administration regulations. More Americans die from lung cancer than from any other type of cancer, which is why many people are eager for Simovax to hit the U.S. market soon. Here are three additional medical innovations that the U.S. could benefit from if relations between the U.S. and Cuba continue to thaw. Spoiler alert, they didn't. I, I knew about Simovax. I didn't know about these other three because um, Simovax has been a popular one. It's definitely been like a very big leftist talking point for any of us who want to defend existing socialist states. But um, so one mm-hmm. is more cancer treatments. Um, so they explain cancer is not one disease, but a collection of hundreds of different illnesses. This makes finding one, quote, cure difficult, if not impossible. But over the years, scientists have developed a variety of different tre- treatments that can transform cancer into a chronic survivable condition. About 1.7 million Americans will be diagnosed with cancer this year, and about 600,000 are expected to die of it. In addition to Simovax, Roswell Park is also investigating, these names are, are really difficult, Rocotumumab, Rocotumumab, and VSSP. That's know, fun. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, two more promising cancer drugs invented by the CIM. The CIM is the Center of Molecular Immunology. In Spanish, the acronym is obviously reversed. And it's a cancer research institute located on the west side of Havana. Rakotumumab targets a molecule that scientists believe is found on all cancer cells, which means the drug could one day be effective against blood cancers as well as the solid tumors that accompany diseases like lung, breast, prostate, and colon cancer. VSSP, originally designed as a compound to help boost the immune system response to vaccines, also appears to enhance the anti-cancer immune response. These drugs aren't as fully developed as Simovax, but they appear to have great potential. Roswell Park is preparing for a clinical trial to test rocotumumab in multiple myeloma, and it's prepping, prepping VSSP for three trials, two in kidney cancer and one in breast cancer. Uh, the second thing they developed is a treatment for diabetic foot ulcers. When uncontrolled diabetes causes nerve, ending, causes nerve and blood vessel damage in a person's foot, it can lead to one of the most debilitating complications of the disease, the development of foot ulcers. These can become vulnerable to gangrene and in a worst case scenario can result in toe, foot, or leg amputations. About 73,000 U.S. adults with diabetes had their lower limbs amputated in 2010, according to the American Diabetes Association. Multiple studies of different populations of people who have had their lower limbs amputated show that the procedure is linked to an increased risk of early death, suggesting either that surgery is a trauma many people don't survive or that people who submit to this kind of amputation are some of the most vulnerable and at-risk patients in care. 
uh, since 2006, Cuba has had a drug for foot ulcers called Herbopro-P that prevents the need for amputations. Invented by scientists at the Center for Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology in Havana, the treatment, which its creators describe as, quote, an epidermal growth factor, is injected near the affected area and can accelerate the skin's healing process, closing a wound safely over the course of about three months. By 2013, Herbopro P had been registered in 15 other countries and used to treat more than 100,000 patients. Uh, Dr. David Armstrong, director of the Southern Arizona Limb Salvage Alliance and a professor of surgery at University of Arizona, says he's excited about the treatment. He says, quote, What I want is for this to come to clinical trials in the U.S. to give it a fair shot and see whether or not it lives up to its current promise. Armstrong also noted that besides amputation, the only treatment currently available to Americans with diabetic foot ulcers is a cream with a quote, black box warning, indicating that the treatment has serious or life-threatening side effects. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, the third one that they mentioned in the article is treatment for advanced head and neck tumors. Surgery is the primary way to treat most head and neck tumors, but these procedures can severely affect people's ability to chew, swallow, or talk. Alcohol and tobacco use, as well as human papillomavirus or HPV, are major risk factors of the diseases. Nemotuzumab, patented in the U.S. in 1999 by CIM scientists, is a treatment for various head and neck cancers. Nemotuzumab has had orphan drug status in the U.S. for the treatment of glioma since 2004 and for pancreatic cancer since 2015. Researchers can test the drug for rare diseases in clinical trials, but it's not available to the general public. That's what orphan drug status means. In fact, Roswell Park is preparing for another clinical trial of nemotuzumab in combination with an FDA-approved treatment to see how effective it will be against lung cancer. And... The article goes on a bit longer to talk about the specifics of the drugs, but I'm going to skip all that because here's the closing line that I thought was interesting. As economic and diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Cuba continue to normalize, here's hoping that the promising Cuban medical treatments can be investigated fully in the U.S. Um, Americans have been waiting long enough. But it's just like Donald fucking Trump. After the last four years and you see like how much we fucked ourselves by like ratcheting up tensions with Cuba, it's like we're only hurting ourselves because they have all these I wonder if we would have done better against COVID if we had had like Cuban doctors and Cuban medical technology to help. You know what I mean? Because I, I think that they had come up with the vaccine even sooner than the U.S. did. Probably. I could be wrong about that. But I, I don't know that for sure either. But I mean, you know, the bottom line is, first off, that's a low bar. Um, yeah. Almost everyone did better with COVID than we did. But, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, you have to start asking yourself, like, what are these ratcheted up tensions really about? Um, I can't even remember why Trump decided to renege on the Obama era uh, loosening of that. Do you remember what his reasoning was or what the administration's reasoning was? Not at all. Did they even give us a reason? No, I mean, I feel like with most things that Trump did, it was just to misdirect from something that he did. Like he probably said some racist shit or like had some kind of like, I don't know, like right. uh, gaff in the media where he wanted to just like get the, uh, the attention off of him. So then he just like, starts like hey look at russia or like hey look at cuba or whatever you know what i mean he was always doing that it reminds me of that south park episode that was about uh the subprime mortgage crisis 2008 or whatever and stan's trying to return the margarita machine did you ever watch that um so like at the very end he ends up in washington dc because like he couldn't return the margarita machine because it was brokered by someone who issued a bunch of loans for margarita machines. So he had to go to the loan house and the loan house sent him to the lobbyist and the lobbyist sent him to DC and he gets to DC trying to return this margarita machine. And the way that they go about it is they go in this back room with a big circle with a bunch of options that say bail out, blame Russia, all these different options. 
<laughs> I cut off a chicken's head and just let the body run around. Oh, Jesus. No, I did not see that one. I feel like that's the Trump presidency in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty accurate. I didn't see that one. I haven't watched South Park for a while. I was confusing that with something else, but uh, yeah, it sounds pretty accurate. I'm going to make a fucking meme out of that <laughs> and send it to you. All right, so that's about all I have. I did take this one other snippet from an article I found on Marxist.org, uh, just on Cuban socialism. I just took a couple pieces from it that I thought were kind of interesting. Um, I'll just go through it just in case we want to keep it in here. So it's an article called Is Cuba Socialist by Jake Rosen. Uh, let's see. And you can find it on Marxist.org, like I said. Fidel gave a good example of his approach, his attitude of, quote, I'll do it for them if only they'll let me. In this exchange reported by Lee Lockwood in his book, Castro's Cuba, Cuba's Fidel. And Lockwood says, are you predicting a socialist revolution in the United States? And Castro says, no, I am a Marxist. As a Marxist, I believe that revolutions are engendered by a state of misery and desperation in the masses. And that is not the condition of all the people of the United States, but only of a portion, especially the Negroes. And I do not believe that socialism can be imposed for purely theoretical or philanthropic reasons. Only the masses can bring about a change in social structure. And the masses decide to make those great changes when their situation is one of desperation. Many years could pass without that happening to the masses of the United States. In reality, the struggle between the classes is not being conducted inside the United States. It is being con conducted outside the United States borders in Vietnam, in Santo Domingo, in Venezuela, and in certain other countries, including Cuba. It is not the people of the United States who fight today against North American capitalists because United States citizens have a relatively high standard of living and they are not suffering from hunger or poverty. Uh, from another part of that article... It's accurate. Yeah, I mean, a little less accurate now because things seem to be getting worse, but, you know, still yeah. it doesn't seem like we're any closer to a socialist revolution, unfortunately, because at the same time that material conditions have gotten worse, um, authority and, you know, police state has cracked down. So, yeah, well, and, you know, even even aside from that, I think there's a lot to be spoken of regarding the psychological warfare that has been levied against Americans, because even for people that are in poverty like, like let's look at the american right wing you know especially in like tornado alley and the rust belt and shit like that the temporarily embarrassed millionaires thing is very true mm -hmm. like a lot of these people choose to ignore their material conditions and blame it on something completely unrelated because of the you know, almost century now of propaganda that we've been exposed to that's become ingrained in our culture. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel as though that's something that like, you know, the average Cuban revolutionary back in the day really had to quip with. All they knew is, well, I'm hungry, shit sucks. And that guy up on the hill owns most of my paycheck. Yeah. The way that America has dissociated itself from that reality is as ingenious as it is infuriating. Yeah, I mean, while you were saying that, I was just thinking the best trick that capitalism ever pulled was convincing people that socialism was responsible for all the, the evils of capitalism. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it's like, imagine if you were in like an abusive relationship. Let's say you're married to someone who's abusing you daily. And on the side, you have somebody who's like, look, just divorce that asshole. I will come and be in a relationship with you. I'm a healthy, you know, normal person who's going to treat you right. And then the abusive spouse convinces you that all the abuse is coming from the side boyfriend that you're not leaving them for. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's genius. Literally in a way. that crazy. Yeah. Crazy, but also genius. Yeah. Um, so from another part of that article in Herbert Matthews book, Fidel Castro, the former New York times editor relates a conversation he had with Che Guevara about Marxism in Cuba. 
Quote, a story had been published in the United States quoting Che Guevara as saying that Cuba in August 1960 was Marxist. I asked him about that. He got out the text of his speech and read me what he had said. I then paraphrased the passage for him as follows. Said, this is not Marxism. If it seems so, it is an accident of history. Cuba did not choose a Marxist line. If we now seem to be Marxist or to be doing what Marxists would be doing, that is simply because in carrying out our revolution in our own way, we did things that paralleled Marxism. And Shea said, yes, that is the meaning of what I had stated. And Matthews again says, quote, Major Guevara, when we were fighting in the hills of the Sierra Maestra, did you foresee that the revolution would take so radical a turn? And Shea says, intuitively, I felt it. Of course, the course and the very violent development of the revolution couldn't be foreseen. Nor was the Marxist-Leninist formulation of the revolution foreseeable. That was the result of a very long process, and you know it very well. We had a more or less vague idea of solving the problems which we clearly saw affected the peasants who fought with us and the problems we saw in the lives of the workers. I have the pretty clear idea that what is called communism came to Cuba through the press of events. Trading blow for blow with the United States and with the Cuban domestic reactionaries, Castro and the other revolutionary nationalists were finally forced to rely on the local revisionists and, at home and on Moscow for foreign aid to institute the living standard they had promised the Cuban people. The alternative would have been to rely on the masses. So that's just kind of, I only included it in there because it's touching on something that I stumbled upon in, I can't remember if it was the Fidel or Shea episode, but I was saying that like, for a while it seemed like Fidel and Shea, like, and a lot of the people in the revolution were not explicitly Marxist or maybe even didn't know that they were doing Marxism. But it's just what seemed natural to them if you actually want to help working people. And what I think I said in the episode was something to the effect of like, you know, you may not even be a Marxist, a communist, or even a leftist in any way. But if you genuinely believe in helping working class people, marginalized people, downtrodden people who are crushed under the boot of like capitalist oppressors, eventually that's going to lead you to Marxism. Eventually you're going to end up involved with Marxists and communists and leftists because there's really no other way to do it unless you are involved with leftism and just activism in that way. So, yeah, totally. I'm, you know, and even I know we've made the joke before. Um, a few of us have even seen it in the wild, but like there is some self-awareness to that with the right wing, even where, when they call major corporations Marxist or something like that. These Marxist major corporations, mm-hmm. you know, censoring people or whatever. Like there, there's a hilarious little twitch of self-awareness there where they're doing exactly what you're talking about. It's like at the end of the day, the proletariat is the proletariat. They want to advocate for themselves. It's just a matter of working your way through all the bullshit to get there. Yeah. But yeah, that honestly, these three episodes, because I listened to the last two, and this is a really good kind of s- summary of everything with, uh, you know, the last little bits tied in. I think Cuba is such a good case to look at because, I mean, it's at the U.S.'s back door. The fact that it's independent is really amazing. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's a really good example of a socialist success story. When you see all the things that they've accomplished and then that they've been able to withstand against the most powerful empire, the most aggressive totalitarian empire in the history of the world, and 90 miles off the coast of Little Island has been able to do what they've been able to do, it is just endlessly impressive. So, yeah, I think that's where we'll leave it. I'm through all of my notes. And uh, yeah, we can do plugs. Oh, for anybody listening... Ward got disconnected at like the beginning. He wasn't just very quiet this whole time. Like he was, uh, Ward just moved and he doesn't have internet service yet. And he was doing this from his phone and that must not have worked after like the first five minutes. So don't think that Ward just like sat this one out. Like his connection didn't work. <laughs> I know he can tend to be Usually quiet when sometimes. it's a quiet Ward episode, he just doesn't have his uh, wine with him. <laughs> very true. Very true. 
Um, but that being said, we'll get to plugs. Go ahead and plug your website, Jaron. Yeah, so my website is uh, J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N. That's jaronperlman.com. You can purchase either one of my books there. Um, currently, uh, the funds for those are actually going to paying my editor for my third book. So there's no charity as of right now. But generally, that is where book sales go. But yeah, my editor's not cheap because she's good. And I'm trying to save up for that third book. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, and then for anybody listening who's not a Patreon subscriber, I just started the other night reading aloud Jaron's second book, The Politics of Fear. And so I went through the prologue and the first chapter and the notes on the first chapter the other night. And it's about an hour long. And so if you'd like to hear that and then our follow up episode that we will record soon where Jaron and I and whoever else can make it, we will discuss that first chapter and go over the topics in there. Um, so, yeah, you can subscribe to the Patreon to get that. Um, and, yeah, I got to say, dude, I've really been enjoying it. Like. I'm honored that you're doing it, dude. Dude, I love it. I mean, I started reading your book when I first got it months ago when you first joined the podcast. And I know I guess it's like slightly different, like reading through it, but then like reading it carefully and reading aloud. Like, I don't know, man, like I not to like suck your dick too much, but like I can tell you're obviously a bright guy from the time you spent here on the podcast. But like just even the first chapter where you get into like 40 and analysis of why people believe in political ideologies and why they subscribe to political parties and everything. It's just really on another level, and I'm, and I'm very happy to be reading it and getting into it. So, No, that means a ton, man. I mean, like I said in the Discord, though, like I, I was more – the only people I'm nervous about reading that book is uh, you, anybody else on the pod, my father, and David Graber, but he's dead. So um, I really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I'm just blown away by it. I can't wait to get into the discussion part of it. So we'll be doing that soon for our Patreon subscribers. Um, for Sterling, I'll plug the, the podcast Twitter. That is uh, Twitter slash turn left is pod. Uh, for Ward, I'll plug his Instagrams. They are Ward Lolly, W A R D L A W L E Y, and it's backup millennial leftist. And for Cosper, they're Twitch, twitch.tv slash C O S P E R underscore. Um, I don't think they've been on Twitch very much lately, and they just opened up a Substack, though I don't know the URL off the top of my head, and I don't know that there is anything on there yet. So, when we have more developments on that, I'll plug that. What's a Substack? That's where you can uh, you write articles, and it's like a subscriber model. It's basically like the Patreon version of like Medium.com. Sick. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, Cosper will be joining us again on the podcast soon, and I think we'll actually be discussing some of the stuff that they're writing about. So I think that's going to work out very well. So that will be cool. I actually read one of their um, one of the things that they wrote for school, and it was really really great. Cosper's a great writer. Was that the Ficta paper? Or was that a different one? Yeah. I was wondering how that was. I kind of wanted to look at it too, although I don't know anything about Fictus. So, um, and then that being said, let's just plug our uh, patrons again. So, as always, endless thanks to our Patreon subscribers uh, Bro, you know, Marks, David, Tristan, Devante, your mother, Charlotte, there James, <laughs> Bishop Mew, Rural Marxist, MC, John Bovie Fan 420, Aaron, Kyle, John Claude Manhands, Male, Phil, Blackwater Janitor, and Jay Reese. Thank you guys so much. Cannot thank you enough. There's no way John Claude Manhans is in Caitlin. <laughs> I mean, yeah, now that you say that, it probably is the case. I'll ask her. I'm going to go on Caitlin's Conspiracy Corner on Sunday. We're going to talk about uh, the Veiled Prophet. Nice. I'm down to tune into that. I'm going to talk about the Mummers because that's uh, local to me. Do you know about the Mummers? Do people know about that outside of like the Philly, Jersey area? I have no idea what that is. Yeah, I mean, for anybody listening who's not familiar with the Mummers, they're like this 
crazy parade that happens in Philadelphia and they dress up in these really elaborate costumes. I mean, like incredibly elaborate, very well synced up costumes. Like I don't know where the funding is coming from for all of this, but anyway, I still haven't written up any notes for it, but I got to look into the mummers and see what they're about because I don't really understand it, but I'm wondering if it is something similar to the veiled prophet thing, which is another weird kind of thing that I think is, um, a St. Louis area specific thing. But anyway, we'll talk about that on Sunday on the Caitlin's Conspiracy Corner podcast. So that should be fun. All right. Yeah. That being said, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you everyone for listening. Tell your friends, leave us some good reviews on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to us on. And we'll see you next time. Thanks again, Jaron. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely, man. Later, y'all. Later.